we are in the second step of the process of sanctification. Discipline. If you would please follow in the reading of the Word of God. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 13. This is the third time I am coming to you. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I have previously said, when present the second time, and though now absent, I say in advance to those who have sinned in the past, and to all the rest as well, that if I come again, I will not spare anyone. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Lord, thank you for for your word. Father, for your Holy Spirit that seals us, intercedes for us, and attests to our spirit that we are children of God. Father, I thank you for the Apostle Paul and his faithfulness even to the end. And Father, that even as we would look at this section and think that he's getting to say his goodbyes, he is definitely instructing, exhorting, uh, and in some cases to those who would hear this, rebuking. Help us, Lord. Help us to understand the preciousness of your church. But, Father, help us to understand its holiness. It is clothed in Christ. And, Father, let that be seen in our society. To you, my Lord, my Savior, in Christ's name, amen. Over the last few weeks, I've been dealing with the motive of discipline. Discipline. No one likes discipline, but it is necessary. If you have children, you know that you must discipline them. If um, you do not, I will deal with that at the end of this message. Because when you do not discipline your children, everyone is aware of it. It's, it's an amazing phenomenon. I also understand that the Apostle Paul looked at the church as his spiritual children. There are people that we have crossed our lives and God, by his grace, his mercy and his sovereignty, have allowed us to lead them into the presence of salvation. You know, I can. I'm not an evangelist. Mine is more discipleship. And I've only led five people to the Lord in, in my life. But I can with great joy say all five have stayed firm to the faith. So, you know, if I'm five for five and they're all legit, I'll take it. Okay, that's some of the stuff that we deal with. One of the things that I have seen in 20 plus years as a pastor as 35 years of being in the church community here in Castle Rock is a slow degrading of discipline. And, and, it, and it's kind of amazing. I, I shared with you the motive for discipline, it, first and foremost, is holiness. Be holy, for I am holy. So the church and the individuals that make up the church should be set apart from the world. Okay, it doesn't mean I don't exist in the world, but the priorities of a Christian should be completely opposite of that of the world. The concerns of a Christian should be completely opposite. The passions of a Christian 
should be completely opposite of the world. That's what it means to be holy, to be set apart. All right. The reason that we are set apart is the second motive is to bring repentance and restoration. Christians, sometimes by just ignorance, will fall into sin, snares, traps. Sometimes it's willful rebellion. Either way, we as brothers and sisters are there to help restore that relationship. And that's what we will deal with of the method Today, But I I found a little article that came out of a book called The Guide to Church Discipline by a guy named J. Carl Laney. Okay, and he's speaking. It was written in 1985 and he's speaking of the church today. And, And if you just look around. All right. Here's his quote. The church today is suffering from an infection which has been allowed to fester. As an untreated boil oozes germ-infested pus and contaminates the whole body, so the church has been contaminated by sin and moral compromise. As an infection weakens the body by destroying its defense mechanism, so the church has been weakened by this ugly sore. The church has lost its power and effectiveness in serving as a vehicle for social and moral and spiritual change. An illness is due, at least in part, to a neglect of spiritual discipline. Unquote. Kind of a gross picture, isn't it? But if you think about it, it's true. And it's been a a progression. And and I can't tell you honestly when it started. I know that the battle has always been there. All right, because the flesh is a a powerful adversary. And what you find is, is that Christian leadership at times starts succumbing to the swaying of the flesh. And it usually starts off small. Small. Okay, they're not just going to wake up and say, well, let's just go marry and divorce as often as we want. They're not going to do that. Okay, it starts off with little things, neglectful things, little tad bits of compromise. And one of the things that I have watched, and it's full blown now, is that the church at times, in the name of grace, love and mercy would like to go to the lost and ask him, what would you like from a church? Now that's, if you think about it, that's just a tad bit nuts. But right now you can go to Denver, all right, and there's a church called the Bar in the Bible. And they rent a bar in the morning And they serve cocktails and you can sit around the bar and discuss theology. All right. And everybody thinks that's awesome. Okay. Now, 
Ten years ago, you'd say, well, I still say it's nuts. But that's what has happened. You know, if you go by some of the churches on Saturday nights now, you'll find most churches, a lot of churches have Saturday night services. And what I have found with them is that they have what they call the lights down low and the music up loud services. Okay, now when I grew up, that was a bar. You went in and the lights were down low and the music was up loud. And never did really understand what the purpose of it was, but it was that way all the way across the board, so evidently it worked. And that's what churches are doing. And that's a little bizarre to me. Because we have completely lost the fact that we have been called to repentance. And we've been called to a repentance that is God's standard. All right? So that we will be holy as our Father in heaven is holy. And we started out, and the first section there was repenting from strife and jealousy and angry tempers and disputes and slanders and gossip and arrogance disturbances, also from impurity and immorality and sensuality. All right. Then he moved in here and explained. um, He he starts off with a statement. I'm coming to you the third time, but he says, then he quotes Deuteronomy. Every fact is to be confirmed by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Now we move into what is the method. The method of discipline. What happens? Listen. I understand and I have dealt with some very deep wounds in believers over discipline. I have seen church discipline which looks like a witch hunt. And that is not what church discipline is. I have seen church discipline try to be exercised to destroy someone's reputation. And it is usually just done by allegations. If you watch our society today, I don't have to have any facts. I just say it. Okay, and it makes it true. Our president made a statement that we have more mass killings than any country on the planet. And something about that just didn't ring right with me. And I went and checked it. And then we're 10th. We're 10th. And everybody says, well, we have so many guns that we're going to... We've got over 300 million guns in the United States. Okay, now think about that for a second. That's a lot of guns. Okay? We only have 300 million people. Somebody's got more than one. All right? But you know what? How If guns are so awful, why do we even have a population? But see, we say it. Let me just say it. And, and I can go on and on. And it, and it doesn't, it, it isn't even necessarily politicians. I hear Christians say, just say something absurd. And I'm sitting there going, and exactly where is that in the Bible? Okay. So well, I want us to think about things. And, and I see this because people will make allegations all the time. And one of the things that I have learned is, is that if you stand firm for truth, you're a target. 
You may not do a thing, but I know that I have enough people in this community that I would almost go as far as saying hate me, that they will do everything in their power to keep people away from me. And they say all kinds of bizarre things. All right, and I I, I guess after 20-some years, it's, oh, well, uh, I kind of look at it anymore as that means I'm successful. One of the things that I have learned in my years of studying Scripture is that God is a God of justice. Isaiah 30, verse 18. Okay? And when I think about discipline, his plans for discipline are fair, but his plans for disciplines are extremely thorough. In this text here, Paul is chastening the unrepentant sinners in Corinth. And I say he's chastening them because they would have read this letter before the congregation. Okay, so everybody in the congregation is going to know who Paul's talking about. All right, and so now it's sort of been laid in their lap. But Paul is showing, by quoting Deuteronomy, that he was in line with the law of God. Okay, now he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 19. Okay, understand Deuteronomy is the word means second law. Okay? It was given to Israel because they were going into the promised land. All right? And once they got into the promised land, they would be governed by Deuteronomy. The second law. This is how they were to interact with each other. This is how they were going to interact with foreigners. This is how their society would evolve and would move around and would look. All right? Here's what he says in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. Okay? That means that if someone comes up and just makes an accusation and no one else was witness to it, do not receive the accusation. Alright? The text is dealing with a judicial setting. It's like someone saying, well, you stole something from me. Well, did anybody see you steal it? Okay. Can anybody identify it that, yes, that was originally theirs? Do you have witness to this? All right. In Matthew's gospel, in relationship, and we'll, we'll look at this in depth, in relationship to church discipline, in chapter 18... Okay, Jesus himself also quotes Deuteronomy. All right. Also in Matthew's gospel in chapter 27. Remember in front of Pilate. Two witnesses. Brought false accusations against Jesus. 
And it was based on Deuteronomy 19.15. So you see this is is very common. And, And even in our day and age today, we prefer witnesses. We do have some scientific methods, but we do prefer witnesses. Some say that DNA and fingerprints are the new witnesses. And yet, the Old Testament affirms, you go back to your text, and he says, every fact, that word is rhema. You know what that means? It's fact. It's not an allegation. It's not a supposition. It's not a theory. It's not a hypothesis. It's rhema. It is fact. No one could be convicted of any crime unless the accused has two or three witnesses against them. Okay, it doesn't matter what the crime was. So we're not two or three witnesses, it won't happen. And it's quoted numerous times. It's enforced numerous times. Paul quotes it, Numbers 3530. Same idea. Deuteronomy 17.6. I like the Gospel of John because... The Gospel of John kind of expounds this fact in John eight seventeen. Even in your law, the, the, the Pharisees, the scribes are trying to <laughs> trip up Jesus. And he says, even in your law, it has been written that the testimony of two men is true. Okay. The letter to the Hebrews in chapter 10, verse 28, chapter 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. All right, now listen. I've given you Old Testament, I've given you New Testament. So the same requires multiple witnesses to hold true in the process of church discipline. No one can be put out of a church until there's been a thorough and you'll see it. It's a four step process. Now, listen, I want to share with you something because this is this is really troubling today. I have been the senior pastor for 20 years here. I have been in this church for roughly 30, 35 years. Okay. There has been a couple of incidents that we have exercised church discipline. One time, we did all four steps. Once. Normally, if you confront someone on sin... They vanish. They're just gone. You don't see them again. Okay? And you never, you never have to, to do it. And here's the reason. In the writing of the New Testament, if you were attending a church in Jerusalem, there was only one. If you went to Corinth and you went to church, there was only one. The largest city in the Roman civilization was Rome. Guess how many churches they had? 
One. All right. There's 54 in Castle Rock. All right. So if you confront somebody, they can attend a different church every week for a year and not get them all. And if you think about it, how many churches are willing to call sin a sin? They might make a generic reference to it from the pulpit, but to hold the people accountable, when does that happen? Okay? So if you're preaching on sin and repentance and the people get nervous about it, they are gone. One of the things that I do understand, though, is that to set a person outside of the church is for protection. I Today, in you go through Castle Rock today and go to any of the churches here, you're not going to understand that a group of people are there for your safety. You will hear... Well, they seem judgmental. They're too Bible. Okay, they're they're too old-fashioned. And yet the church was given for our strengthening so we will be safe in a lost and dying world. But see, nobody appreciates the church for that anymore. I I have witnessed what this looks like. The first time I went to Russia, I was met in Chicago by uh, the head of Slavic Gospel Association, and he says, "Get ready." And I, you know, you know, when you got the president says that, you're like, "Oh, what does that mean? Get ready." He says, "You're going to feel like you're going to go back to the first century church." And I was like, "Really? All right." And you know what? He was right. He was right. I never seen anything like it. Sunday, everybody stayed at the church. But you know what? They don't have TVs. They've got some radios. There's probably a handful of people who got TVs, but it's not like they're going to sit at home and watch football or cable news. They would rather spend it with the saints. And I never seen anything like it. They met every day there was some group of people in the building doing something. Now, I was teaching leaders, so I was in another part of it. So I understand that I was there for my conference. But, you know, I would go down and they, there was always something going on. And that was when the one Russian told me, he says, that in America, you add Christ to your life. In Russia, Christ is life. And I thought, wow, this is totally awesome. Shame you guys talk funny. (laughs) I can't understand a word you say. But do you see what I'm trying to get at? We have lost that. We have lost that. And I can't tell you when. And, you know, and I hear all, well, it's the materialism. And it's, you know what? Uh, No, it's part of it is that what did the church do? It's, It's why you see the church now has changed and it wants to look like the society. Why? Well, if I look like the society, maybe they'll like us. 
And that's not our job. But I, I always look at the church as safety. This is where I am safe. Why? The world hates us. They killed your Savior. They don't like you. And if they do like you, they've either taken you prisoner or you're not his. Paul says that I set Harmonius and Alexander outside of the church so that Satan could teach their flesh not to blaspheme. That doesn't sound that pleasant to me. Just doesn't sound that pleasant. So I want to look at these four steps. We'll go through them really quick. And it's in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 18. And I want you to understand these things. So like I said, we've only had to do this once, full-blown. And then the guy left the state. I tracked him down to a church in West Virginia. And sent the pastor of that church a letter that he was under church discipline. The reason that he was under church discipline, never heard anything else. So anyway, how does it start out? Chapter 18, verse 15. If your brother sins, okay, your brother is anyone that ain't you. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in Private. It doesn't say take it to the prayer committee. It doesn't say take it to the prayer chain. It doesn't say take it to the pastor or the elders for fervent prayer. It says you do it how? In private. You witnessed it. You saw it. Do it in private. If he listens, you have won your brother. If you listen, you don't have to do anything else. All done. Okay, that's similar to the Galatians chapter six, verse one text. Any of you see a brother in a trespass, bear their burden. You who are spiritual. Because see, a lot of people will point out other people's shortcomings because they want to feel spiritual. Okay, if you feel spiritual, then that means you're willing to bear that burden. Help them to become victorious over their snare. All right, if they refuse, okay, like I said earlier, usually they leave. They vanish. Spontaneous combustion. Gone. Poofed. Okay. But if they refuse, the one who confronts is to do it again, because the one who confronted the first time was what? The witness. But the second time, they'll take one or two witnesses. Verse 16. If he doesn't listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact, Rima, may be confirmed. May be confirmed. Well, how does that work? Well, think about it. You confront somebody over a sin, they refuse. 
you wait a time, you realize that they're not changing, they're not dealing with it, and they have refused. So, I go back the second time, and I take a couple of people with me. All right? Hey, you know, I've kind of shared with you in love that uh, this is going on. You need to rectify this. That response will be witnessed by the other two witnesses. They will see how the individual dealt with it. Now, I usually do this. Like I said, I haven't done this a lot because normally if someone points out someone else's sin, they leave. But the times that we have had to push it down the pike a little bit, if it was a woman, I had women do it. If it was a man, you know, whoever witnessed it starts it out, okay? And then they take two or three witnesses. They will again see how this person responds to the confrontation. Alright? If they still refuse, verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, alright, tell it to the church. Tell it to the church. The entire church now becomes involved in calling to repentance. Right. The one time that we've had to chase it all the way across, I was the one who bore witness to the sin and was involved. Okay. And I took to the elders and we confronted and he refused. And I brought it to the church and this is exactly how I did it. I looked at the congregation I said, this person refuses to repent. He has been confronted. This is his address. I would ask that everybody in the church send him a card calling him to repentance. I did not say what he was doing. I did not tell anybody what the sin was. I didn't even put it on the prayer chain. And what I understand is, even the kids sent this guy cards. Okay? Which is pretty awesome if you think about it. But I don't have to, you don't have to get into detail. You don't have to say, well, this is what they're doing. Alright? If they refuse after the church calls them to repentance. The end of verse 17. If you refuse to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay? Now, I just want to give you a footnote. Alright? I want to show you how screwed up we have become. I just gave you the four steps of dealing with sin. You pray you never get past step one. Okay? But look at what we do. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loosen on earth shall be loosened in heaven. <laughs> you know how we use that verse? For binding and loosening demons. Or two or more gathered for prayer. 
Now, do you see the context that that's in? If you set somebody outside of the church a non-repentant sin, that is okay in heaven's eyes. That's what it means. It ain't got nothing to do with demons. It ain't got nothing to do with prayer. It's got to do with church discipline. But we throw, let us bind this. And I'm like, wait a minute. That's just a footnote. All right. If you go to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 19, I want to kind of reiterate this thing to you. Timothy is in Ephesus dealing with a mess. Paul had already kicked out two leaders, set them outside of the church for blasphemy. And he had left Timothy there to correct everything. Chapter 3, he deals with the qualifications of an elder. And then he gets into this text here and he says, chapter 5, verse 19, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. Now, why is that? Well, elders are targets. I mean, I got into trouble because he hugs women. Well, in this day and age, that's a step up. <laughs> that's probably a good thing. All right. And I, I've, I've never understood that. It ain't. Yeah, never mind. We won't go there. Paul repeats this principle and he says, you've got to have multiple witnesses. So, uh, accusations against church leadership is very dangerous. Very, very dangerous. Okay, so if you're going to bring accusation against church leadership, you'd better have a handful of witnesses. And I don't mean one who says, listen, I'm going to bring somebody else and we'll go talk about it. I mean, you need to have plural witnesses have seen something wrong. In chapter one of this letter, first Timothy verses 18 to 20, that includes doctrinal error. Okay. If the elder is teaching doctrinal error, then you need to have two or three witnesses saying that what they're teaching isn't biblical. These two guys, Harmenius and Alexander, were not teaching biblical truth. And Paul says, I will set you outside of the church. The letter to Titus in chapter 3, verse 10. Reject a factious man after the first and the second warning, knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. See, sin, like the sore, threatens the unity of the church. And it has to be dealt with. That's why if you have false teaching going on in the church, it has to be dealt with. All right? It's... It's... It's for the safety of the saints. It restores the relationship. Listen, it goes back. Remember in chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians, when Paul's dealing with the purity of the church, set this man out. I have dealt with him. All right? I, I want to close with this thinking because, you know, that was kind of a gross illustration that I gave you. Of a boil. Okay. But I want you to understand the danger. An undisciplined church. Is shameful. 
Okay, I don't care what the excuse of not dealing with it is. I can tell you some things that have happened in this community that are stunning. And it was shameful. Uh, There were uh, an affair in the worship team. And basically they said, okay, uh, you need to get this resolved. And so the the singer uh, husband left her. And they waited a little bit, and then she went ahead and married the drummer. And that's dealt with? I I don't know how that works. There are others worse. All right? And they're not dealing with it, and they try to tell me it is love and compassion that they do this. No. It is shameful. It is tragic. It is like an unruly child okay have you ever seen children that aren't disciplined they're a blast to be around aren't they let me give you some wisdom on unruliness proverbs chapter 10 verse 1 the proverbs of solomon a wise son makes a father glad but a foolish son is a grief to his mother. Verse 5. He who gathers in the summer is a son who acts wisely. But he who sleeps in harvest is a son who acts shamefully. Chapter 17 of Proverbs. Verse 21. Interesting phraseology. He who sires a fool does so to his sorrow. And the father of a fool has no joy. Verse 25. The foolish son is a grief to his father, a bitterness to her who bore him. I know. Go back to the boil. Chapter 29, verse 15. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother. Real straightforward. The children of God are in the church. We are to discipline them. And sometimes if you use that verse... You need a rod of reproof. Listen. An undisciplined church brings reproach to the name of Christ. It grieves the Holy Spirit and grieves the Holy Shepherd. The churches in our community today are not reaching the lost. People ain't getting saved. Okay? You know why? What are they offering? We ain't offering you anything. You can walk an aisle. You can say a prayer. Jump down in the hot tub. And you don't have to change it all. You don't have to do another thing. Because we all know that you're saved by grace. Okay? Because if there's any actions in it by you... 
then it's works. And we all know it ain't works. Let me tell you something. I was playing around with the Lord a little while, years ago. Kind of taking Him on my terms. And uh, I went to work on a Monday morning. I was building houses. I was way out east building a house. I remember going to work. No big deal. I, I do remember going to work. The next thing I know, it's Wednesday, and I'm in the hospital. I open my eyes. I'm in the hospital bed. I open my eyes. I look up to the ceiling with the fluorescent light sitting there. And the first thought that goes cruising through my head, first thought, you are not your own. You've been bought and paid for with a price. And God says, I'm sorry. I want your undivided attention all the time. Okay? That ought to wake everybody up. Because I was a little bit on the stiff neck side. Or as my grandma would say, ornery. Only a few of you know what that means. But that was discipline. That was discipline. If the church doesn't take sin seriously enough to take action against it, how can expect the world to take our gospel seriously? Right? That's the method for discipline. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your church. And Father, I pray that your word found fertile ground this day. And Father, it took deep root. It would rest full weight upon the amazement of her Savior. Help us, Lord, as we move into this season and with all of the uh, charades that are going on. I pray, Lord, that each and every one of us will stand in the grace that is in Christ Jesus, reflect the awesome power and glory of our Savior and Lord, and that, Father, we would be used exceedingly abundantly beyond what any of us could think or imagine, and that your gospel would go through with power in this season, not pageantry. Help us, my King. Help us to walk worthy. Help us to stand. Your glory and praise. Amen.